Super Bowl 51 uh, holds the record for the biggest comeback in the championship football game. February 5th, 2017 saw a matchup between the New England Patriots with star quarterback Tom Brady and the Atlanta Falcons with the league MVP quarterback Matt Ryan. Through the first half of the game into the middle of the third quarter, Atlanta was dominating the game. They ran out to a 28-3 lead, and as much as I hate to admit it, you can never count out Tom Brady. He rallied his team, and they overcame a 25-point deficit to win the biggest game in football. And I remember watching the Super Bowl and feeling so bad for the Atlanta Falcon fans, the ownership. I mean, they had never won a Super Bowl. That might have been the Patriots' sixth Super Bowl. I don't remember when they tied the Steelers. It was that year or another year, but... You know, they thought they had this game in the bag. The Falcons' owner, Arthur Blank, he came down out of, you know, his, his owner's box down to the sidelines. I remember him kind of being linking arms with some of the players at the end of the game, ready to, like, run out on the field when the t- clock expired to celebrate. And then the momentum turns, and New England Patriots score very late in the game, and, you know, that, that was it. He stood there, kind of open, gaping with his mouth open. And this game has come to have cultural implications with that the phrase 28 to 3 has become a symbol for nothing being over until it's truly over. This ethic occurs in other places as well. In hockey or in soccer, there's a saying that a two-goal lead is the most dangerous lead. Why? You would think one goal would be the most dangerous lead, but two goals is often called the most most dangerous lead, because when you get up by two goals, you begin to relax. The urgency of the gameplay is no longer there. If you're only up by one, the pressure is still on your back, but a quick turn of momentum, a team can erase a deficit in a matter of minutes. Most of you know that I'm one of the coaches for the Dixon Middle School soccer team, and you know, when, when our players were nearing their first victory in years, we used a common expression. We were shouting it to the players to encourage them. We said, keep your foot on the gas, meaning that even though you have a lead, don't let up the pressure. Don't become complacent. Now, in all of these examples, the key theme is to maintain a level of tenacity, of mental focus at the task that is at hand. And this is precisely the message that comes from Paul in this next section of Philippians that we're going to look at this morning. And I know all of my metaphors, I I try to balance my sports metaphors, but I know that I used a lot of sports metaphors, but that is the background that Paul is drawing his wisdom to connect the dots for his readers. So if you want to follow along, if you want to open your Bibles or Bible apps, we're going to pick up at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12. Now, just to recap last week, Paul stated that our justification, our standing, our righteousness before God is not bolstered by any of our efforts. It's purely through the grace that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But as we've seen over the last several weeks, there is a dual responsibility that exists. Remember, two weeks ago, we were called to work out, not work for, but work out our salvation because God's working in us. And so, as we think about what our responsibility in this might be, let's pick up Paul's argument and continue to explore this theme of persevering. So, Philippians 3, 
verse 12, and I'm going to actually read to chapter 4, verse 1. Sometimes, you know, the the, uh, chapter headings and verse numbers were were not uh, part of the inspired Word of God. It was just a letter. Later editors came back and added those, and sometimes they don't always pick the best breaks. Uh, Probably the break between 4, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 is a better break, so that's where we're going to use that break. So if you want to follow along. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame, and they glory in their shame, their mind sets on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul begins this section by clarifying his prior comments. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. He he is ensuring the Philippians that what he has said does not mean, you know, he's talking about receiving all of this perfection, this righteousness in Jesus Christ, but he's saying it doesn't mean that he has obtained spiritual perfection. He also is working out his own salvation He also is awaiting the resurrection from the dead. Paul is a work in progress. Now, there's a little wordplay. I'm going to get you a little Greek here. Uh, Sorry if that's boring to you, but there's a little wordplay between what we see in verse 12 and verse 15. And so in verse 12, he says that he has not obtained perfection, and it's this word, teteleomai. In verse 15, the word is usually translated as maturity, so remember, the first is, I haven't obtained per, per, uh, perfection. And this is a passive, meaning that he isn't getting it. It's something that's given to him. But in verse 15, when describing maturity, he uses this word, teleoi. And you can see, I mean, with the exception of that last I, uh, they're the exact same word in the middle there. If you cut off the T-E and the my at the end, it's basically the same word. Right? They are from the same root word in Greek, which is telos which can be translated as perfection or having reached its end. And so what Paul is saying here, I'm going to pull those off. What Paul is saying here is that a component of spiritual maturity is realizing that we're not able to reach the end of perfection on this side of paradise. In other words, we are spiritually mature when we realize that there is always greater spiritual maturity that we can lean into. It's very much like that almost, or that it's here but not yet, almost but not yet. 
Like we've been, we've been perfected by Christ, and the, uh, the author of uh, Hebrews says the same things, right? That it, through one sacrifice, Christ perfected those who are being perfected. So there is a growing process for us. And, and this isn't just important for Paul's audience, I think this is important for us as well. Because there are plenty of Christian traditions that teach some degree of sinless perfection on this side of paradise. They're often found in what's uh, called the holiness traditions. And these traditions put a strong emphasis on the lifestyle of the believers of faith. You know, you might have figures tel- like televangelist Kenneth Copeland. You know, he's claimed to have encountered heaven and expressed that it has left this imprint of perfection upon him. Now, don't get me wrong, obedience is important, but right here in the text we have words of Paul that highlight that the life of faith is ongoing, right? We never, quote-unquote, arrive at holiness or spiritual perfection until the time that Jesus is going to come and fulfill his kingdom, right? Raise our lowly bodies to match his perfected one. And so in this section to describe this, Paul uses two metaphors to make his point, right? Verses 12 through 14. Uses the, the world of war and athletics to detail the strenuous nature of effort that is part of this ongoing life of faith, right? Being a Christian is meant to be hard work. It's free, but it's hard work. In verse 12, he, when he says that he desires to make it his own, the NIH NIV translates it as taking hold of, and this phrase describes the relentless pursuit of one army towards another. Right? There is a single-minded attempt at this goal. And the motivation he gives is because Jesus Christ has, right, he should take hold of because Jesus Christ has taken hold of us. We are in the kingdom because Jesus Christ pursued us. Remember that imagery of an army taking over another army. Jesus Christ pursued us, overtook us in our rebellion against God. And as a result, we've been unleashed to continue to strive, to continue to march towards holiness, pursuing that end goal of imitating the life and work of Jesus Christ. And then Paul turns to the world of athletics. He forgets what is behind. When you are running, you ought not to look behind you. It only slows you down. You know, if you're playing baseball and you're running to first base, you shouldn't look to see where that, you know, did the fielder field the ball cleanly or not because that's going to slow you down. But it also takes your focus off the path in front of you. Sometimes when Catherine gets off the bus, she hands me her backpack and likes to race me home, and it's quite normal for her to get to a point and turn around, like, where are you, Dad? Right? Do I need to, you know, do, you know she's thinking, like, do I need to turn on these jets to, to beat him home? But every time she does, I'm kind of like, watch where you're going, watch where you're going, right? Because our sidewalks are not the most even, and I'm just waiting for that point where she takes her focus off of the path in front of her and turns to look at me, and man, bam, hits that sidewalk. Hasn't happened yet. I'd knock on wood, but that's pagan, so we're not going to do that. Right? We don't want to get tripped up by looking behind us. And so what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to do here is to keep their foot on the gas, Maintain this determined pursuit of Jesus Christ so that they will receive the prize to be able to stand before God, justified because we've been found and formed in Christ Jesus for the glory of his kingdom. 
And in so doing, we will hold true to live up to this pursuit. He says this in verse 16, to live up to, to hold true. It's this word stoichio, and I I immediately recognize it because of my love of chemistry, right? Stoichiometry is a thing. If you're in high school, you either love it or you hate it. Um, But but there's, you know, stoichiometry is this balance, this uh, process. It's like mathematical of balancing chemical equations, making sure there's this, you know, conservation of mass. There's got to be the same amount of, you know, carbon on this side as there is on this side, even though it's changing chemicals. But there's an order to it. There's a cadence to it. And this word occurs three other times in the New Testament, one of which is Galatians 5, to 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And I think what Paul's saying here is when we are pursuing this goal of holiness, guided by the Holy Spirit of God, we will see progress. There's an order to it, a cadence, a rhythm to it, and we will see more and more the character of Christ that which we see revealed in the fruits of the Spirit. Those things are going to be more real in our lives. In verses 17 and following, Paul alters his approach, and he describes what the opposite attitude looks like, that there are those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, those who have chosen to maintain their rebellion against God. And we don't know precisely who he's referring to, right? Are these meant to be, you know, unbelievers outside of the church or though, you know, those who are persecuting the saints? I don't know. Given the emotion of Paul, right, he, he's, he's not relishing sharing this. He, he's weeping as he expresses this example, as he remembers these people. I, I'd wager that these are individuals who are near and dear his heart. Some commentators think that it might have been the Corinthian church, right? They, like they were a hot mess over there in Corinth. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you can see that. But specifically, that language of the God being their belly might correlate to the abuse of the Lord's Supper that you see in First Corinthians chapter 11. Right? That this holy time, this holy meal was perpetuating their social inequalities where you know, their, their social hierarchies where some uh, that were well-off that had privilege would gorge themselves and those without the privilege would go hungry. The truth is we don't know who he means. And, and I think that identifying, you know, who they are might not really be helpful to our examination of the text. Too often I've seen the church point fingers and verbally attack those who are outside of their particular folds, using it as an opportunity to express their superiority. So instead of focusing on the who of Paul's day and trying to articulate the who of our context, I'd much rather us spend the energy of focusing on the purpose of these comments from Paul. Why is Paul even sharing this example? Right? If this is a negative example for us, it is meant to encourage us to live counter to this. Right? Don't be like that. So it begs the question, how should we be living differently? And Paul gives in the text two antidotes to that adversarial posture against Jesus. First, follow the example of mentors, those who have gone before you. Verse, that's verse 17. And second, for the Philippians to remember their citizenship. Verse 20, and let's take these two themes in turn. In our life and faith, it is important for us to look to those who have gone before us as an example. Right? This word example that Paul uses, it's the word typos. You could see the etymology, our understanding of type. It describes a pattern. It's a stamp. It's a word that's used to describe a seal. Right? Think of a, 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 a signet ring that a noble would push down on wax to leave an imprint what Paul is saying is that those of us, that, that, excuse me, that we should have those we can look to who will leave an impression on us. 
leave an impression on our hearts and minds toward that kingdom of God, the same way that a seal is going to leave an impression on wax. Now, in this short letter, we've seen Paul provide plenty of examples or figures that the Philippians could look to. A few weeks ago, we saw the ministry of Timothy and Epaphroditus exhibited for us. Paul has previously hinted at his own behavior and obedience to the kingdom of God. You know, here he explicitly tells them to imitate him. Now, he's not being narcissistic to be like, look how great I am, just imitate me. It's clear in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says to Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And so my question to you this morning, one of many I'm sure that I'll ask, is who are those that you're looking to in faith? Like, who are you looking up to? Who are the people that you are imitating as they are imitating Jesus? Something I often say is as we pursue the life that God calls us to, we should have two hands reaching out, right? Have a hand reaching up to those who are farther on than us. Those who on the path can grab our hands and help pull us up, help us elevate what it means to to be in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, we also have a hand reaching down reaching for those behind us and bringing them up, those who we say to imitate me as I'm trying to do my best here to imitate Jesus. To put it another way, I'm a believer that we should have someone, it doesn't have to be formalized, but someone who is mentoring us, who's encouraging us, cheering us on to keep our foot on the gas. But we should also be that type of mentor to someone else. Now, I know you might be here and be like, I don't feel like I have anything to offer. I feel like I'm a hot mess. But you do. Hey, if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you have grown. You have been formed by Christ. You are not the same person today that you were a month ago or a year ago or 10 years ago. There's someone who's going to be lagging behind you a bit that you can be a source of encouragement. I I like, I mean, I've used this image before. I think it's funny. I like Marvel too, but this is how I often feel, right? You see Paul modeling Christ. You got Spider-Man. You've got uh, Miles Morales, you know, the black-suited Spider-Man there as Paul, Christ and Paul. And, and, you know, I feel like when I'm trying to, like, live up to them, I'm just like that knockoff Spider-Man there. Um, I can't, you can't even see out of that. I'm not on their level. But the truth of the matter is you're not the same person you were when you first came to Jesus. And your story, your inspiration Your story can be an inspiration for those who who are a little bit behind you on the path. That's that's my fun picture for the day. Now, the second antidote that Paul, so the first is mentors, having mentors. The second antidote that Paul says is to remember our citizenship. And this word for citizenship, I'm not going to give you any more Greek, but it's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. And it's a word with political undertones, similar to what we saw a few weeks ago with this word that was translated as conduct yourself, like live as a citizen. And the word could be, this word here, as, that's dis, uh, uh, translated as citizen, could be more literally translated as commonwealth, right? Live as if you were part of a commonwealth, right? A, well of, a relevant word for the Philippians, because the city of Philippi was a commonwealth. It was a colony of the Roman Empire. And so what does it mean for us to remember to be a part of the commonwealth of the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is where I often you know, try to remind our congregation that when we're talking about heaven, this does not mean that our destination is some otherworldly location. 
In two days, I'm really excited. Sky Jatani's new book is being released, and it's called What If Jesus Was Serious About Heaven? It's another book that I'm considering for our small group this spring, so it, it'll be a real simple read if we do. Um, but in the book, Sky is trying to recast our vision. He, he says that many of the most popular perspectives that we have about heaven uh, are profoundly unbiblical. It's a loose paraphrase, but that's pretty much, I'm, I'm, he did say profoundly unbiblical. And, and you know, the, person, the purview of this message this morning is not for us to construct a, a whole theology of heaven But when the Bible tells us to remember that our citizenship is in heaven, it doesn't mean that we're going to just vacate this place, that we're just going to go somewhere else. So it doesn't matter what we do here on earth. As Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said, not a Christian, but I feel like this fits in line with Christian, you know, theology of end times, as he said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. And so for the Philippians to remember their citizenship of heaven is to remember who is ultimately calling the shots. It isn't Caesar, it's God. They're living to a higher calling than their neighbors. Yes, they, ref- they defer to the rules and laws of their leader, the Lord, while they continue to work, right? I love that, that song we sang by Ren Collective, Build Your Kingdom Here. It's, it, it, it finds that intersection of continuing to work for the kingdom of God in the geographic regions, the places that they find themselves in. So I think that's what it means, that we, we both look up to heaven, up to God, as well as down here in the place that we find, geographically the place we find ourselves. That's what it means to, to remember our, um, our citizenship, our being a part of God, the commonwealth of God's kingdom, that it's here. It's not here in its fullness, but it's here now. And it's only going to be more here when Jesus brings an end to all things. All right, let me summarize the themes of Paul briefly before we turn to some application. So Paul encourages the Philippians to, to keep pressing on, right? Keep your foot on the gas. And he's providing three truths to support this. First, that as long as they are in their lowly, quote unquote, lowly bodies, they have not yet reached perfection. So they got to keep pressing forward. You haven't arrived. You're not there yet. Second, there is the reminder that one day they will all stand before Jesus Christ. They'll need to give an account of themselves under his judgment. And lastly, just as Christ humbled himself and was exalted, this too is going to be the result for them, for the Philippians. So what does this mean for us? First, we cannot reach perfection on this side of the paradise. I think the Bible's clear of this. If anyone tells you otherwise, I think they're wrong. Holiness movements have been detrimental to many Christians. I'm sure there's a lot of good that takes place in them. But a lot of these traditions kind of force Christians to wallow in guilt and shame because they are not experiencing the victory or growth in Christ that, that others have set as a bar for them. It's a works righteousness mindset. God loves me because I do X, Y, and Z, or God is disappointed in me because I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, rather than trusting and leaning into the true grace of the gospel. And you even see some of this in in writings. I mean, I really respect John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist tradition, but he wrote that we could experience, you know, imperfection in some areas of life while we had attained perfection in others. I don't know that that's true. I, kind of a, a funny story. My public band school, it, this was my public school teacher, but he was my band teacher in high school. 
he would never, we would have these like pop quizzes where we'd have to, you know, in, in our music, we would have to do like a couple bars of it and play it for him. Um, and, you know, he would never give out perfect tens. On, it was worth 10 points. He'd never give perfect 10 points. You know, maybe 9.9s, but never 10. He used to say that there was only one person who was perfect and they crucified him. I don't know how far that would fly nowadays. Um, that's what he said. Mr. Grill, that was his name. The point is, we can't reach it. There's always a, a you know, uh, gosh, I don't want to talk about asymptotes. That's too much math for you guys. But the point is, like, we're never going to reach the goal. We, we, but we keep slogging on. We keep trying to get closer, but we shouldn't be stymied. We shouldn't be disappointed when we don't reach it. It's okay. We, we, we are still going to sin. We are saints who sin. I think that's, I don't remember, someone else said that. Maybe it was Wesley too. I don't remember. Maybe it was Luther. Anyway, so that, the, the point is we're not going to reach, we're not going to reach the end on this side of paradise before Jesus comes back. Second, how are you disciplining yourself to see progress in your spiritual life? Paul uses the military. He uses the athletic examples to showcase that there is blood, there is sweat, there is tears that goes into this process. You know, he states, don't look behind while you're running. And I don't think that he's referring to like, you know, forget all that junk of the past. Forget all those pre-Christian sins. I don't actually think that's what he means here. I think that's often how we uh, uh, process it or think about it. Given the context, I think this is more about losing sight, right? Not focusing on those spiritual accolades that you've made. It's about like, don't, like, have a short memory, you know, uh, Ted Lasso says, be a goldfish, right? Have a, have a short memory. So have a short memory on the times that you, like, mess up, but I think there's also this point of, like, have a short memory on the times that you, like, succeed abundantly, because the point of these is that we're not to look to be like, all right, I'm here, like, I can stop running. Keep striving on. The goal for Paul is for us not to become complacent in our faith, Keep that foot on the gas. Continue to pursue discipline for the kingdom of God. So what does discipline look like for you? To use some language from two weeks ago, what are you going to do to work out your salvation, right? Not work for, but work out. Since we've been given this gift of salvation and redemption in Christ, what rhythms, what behaviors are you going to do to lean into that? And if you're sitting here being like, I don't know, Nothing comes to mind like, I just want to encourage you, begin with the spiritual disciplines. Right? These are tried and true patterns of life that saints have used for centuries to experience greater growth in spiritual life, greater attention and connection to God. Right? If you want to run a 5K, but you have never run before in your life, there's going to be some stuff you got to do before you can't just get up off the couch and run it. You're probably going to need to buy a good pair of sneakers that you can actually run in and not get like plantar fasciitis. Right? You're going to need to get off your couch and maybe you start by walking a mile, increasing your pace, increasing your endurance, increasing your distance so that you can physically complete the task. The spiritual life is no different. Maybe you need some tangible resources, like right? those right shoes for running, aid you in the process. Maybe you need a new Bible. Maybe you're like the Bible that you have, you just like don't understand because it's not in a modern English. Maybe you need to get a, a modern English translation. Maybe you can't sit and pray for a, an hour, but start with five minutes. You know, join this Bible daily reading plan that we have. Don't sit on your heels, but find a way to be active with your faith. Last point of application is to live as a citizen of God, right? Not, we shouldn't just passively wait for Jesus to return, to carry us away. 
But I believe that we have been invited by God to join in his restorative work that his Holy Spirit is bringing in places that we live. So find out where that is and jump in on it. Join the PTA at your child's school. Run for local office. Volunteer to nonprofit in your neighborhood. Pick up trash around your block. Be a big brother or big sister to underprivileged child. We are called to live in a way where our citizenships collide. Not in an adversarial way, but like what does your citizenship as an American or as a Swiss Valian or a, I don't know, Chalfontian, I don't know what, what, what adjective you would use, or a Wolverine, you know, for our school district. What, how do those identities come in contact with you, this elevated citizenship as a child in God's kingdom? Find those places, find ways to, to you know, we, we don't bring the kingdom, I want to be clear about that but we can join God in the ways that he is bringing his kingdom. In closing, on Thursday, um, our middle school soccer team was up against a really good opponent. We're winning at halftime, and one of the students stated, uh, don't be the Atlanta Falcons. That's what he said. And I joked with him. I was like, hey, I'm already, I'm already planning on using that as my opening il- illustration, you know, that Super Bowl reference at the beginning. But his point was, you know, don't let up the pressure. He said to his, t- saying to his teammates, finish this soccer game strong and let's leave with a victory. And I want to encourage you with those same words of wisdom for your spiritual lives. Don't be the Atlanta Falcons. God's given us such blessings. We're up big at halftime. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't try to coast. And st- instead, find ways to pers- continue to pursue God and join God's work as he works in you and works in the places and the world that you live in. And so as we consider these themes, here are some um, <clears throat> questions to reflect on. Coming, oh, it is coming up. Okay. First is this. What is one thing? Start, uh, I don't remember his name, but he wrote a book called Atomic Habits. I don't like imagine yourself being like, I'm going to be this super Christian here. Start with one thing. What is one thing you ought to start or stop doing to see growth in your spiritual life? Maybe it's I need to turn, I don't know if you can even do this, but maybe I need to turn off the autoplay on Netflix. I don't know, maybe that's a simple thing that because that's taking all your time. Maybe for me, one of the things that I started doing that's real simple, scripture before screens. The first thing I do when I wake up before I go and check my text messages, football scores, uh, my mail is I'm reading that, bi- that chapter of the Bible that we are going to read, um, that, that, you know, that those in the church who are joining and are reading. What's one thing that you can either start or stop doing to see growth? Second is this, who would someone you look to for guidance and encouragement in your faith? Who is that hand that you are reaching up to? but also who is someone you might be able to encourage in the faith. Think, identify, inventory these relationships. Because if you say, man, I don't really have anyone that I can look up to, that's a problem. Like, think about. Find places that you can do it. Last but not least, where do you see God's work in your community, and how can you join in that work for the sake of the kingdom of God? As we sing things like, build your kingdom here, we, we are the laborers. The, the, the fields uh, are ripe for the harvest that God has prepared. May we join in it. Let's pray. Lord, may we see the gifts that we have received and not become complacent with them. May we not just be lazy and say, oh, Christ Jesus, you've won it all for us, and allow us to just relax. May we maintain the tenacity, the perseverance that Paul 
articulates here in this passage to continue to pursue you because you're worth it, God. Not because there's some, you know, benefit that we might receive, but because you are good and it does good for us in order to more fully behold your beauty and majesty and love. Help us to be holistically people of integrity, of wholeness in your kingdom. God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.